Um, my name is Jonathan Pasquale. I'm one of the elders here at Resonate. And if you're new with us, um, you uh, should know that actually our, our main teaching pastor, um, Chris Case, who usually is up here delivering the message, he is on sabbatical, a much-deserved three-month break. Uh, he and his family are traveling around. They're going to different countries. I have no idea where they are right now, but I've heard and seen some pictures that they are enjoying their time of rest. And during that time, they are away, and he is away. We elders have split up the teaching duties, and so we're all um, regular guys with uh, full-time jobs, but who are part of the eldership here. And so I have the joy and privilege of bringing the message this morning. I just want to give you a little bit of a glimpse into my headspace this morning. Um, it's been kind of crazy, um, you know, some of the things with summer and personal stuff going on and just hearing about things that are going on in other people's lives. Um, and so uh, I come here kind of a little bit of a jumbled mind, um, it helped to be part of the first service and already going through things once. But, um, but I need y'all's help today. I feel like, you know, sometimes I, I, uh, I can fill a message with some uh, occasional jokes um, and uh, usually some appropriate self-deprecation, and you guys can laugh along with me, um, and I haven't really filled the message today with any of that. And so um, I, I really would love some engagement. I would love some amens, some like come-ons and yeah, or whatever. Like I'd love, I'd love some of that. And you usually don't get it. I think we need to practice that a little bit more. Um, and so I'd love to hear some of that today. Uh, before we really get going, I'm going to pray. Father, I pray that you are the one speaking to us today. I pray that is your spirit at work. We know he's already at work, and so keep on working. May the name of Christ be lifted up and glorified, and may our fellowship be sweet. I pray that you speak through me, and really it is your word that we hold up that speaks for itself. Amen. So happy Father's Day. Um, I, I'm, I'm a father, and I have uh, four wonderful kids. Two of them are right here. The two are elsewhere. And uh, the oldest ones are 14, twins, faith and favor. We got our 11-year-old, Aurora, Rory right there. She just cut her bangs. You can compliment her on that today. And then our youngest is Ransom. He's nine years old, um, and uh, he's a, a fireball, and uh, you guys know him. So I'm a father. Happy Father's Day to you fathers out there. Make sure you texting and calling your, your dads if they're around. Um, and today is Juneteenth. Happy Juneteenth. And, and I know that, that it's pretty new for some of us to celebrate Juneteenth, June 19th, and uh, to really even know what it's about. So if you've never gotten before, mini history lesson. All right, we got a picture here. It kind of represents this idea that we celebrate today. This picture exactly was kind of um, in, in South Carolina, but I, it represents what happened on Juneteenth of uh, emancipation celebration. The day of Juneteenth, June 19th, 1865, it was a day when Union soldiers came into Galveston, Texas, and for the first time, we're able to share the news of what had already been a reality for more than two years. The Emancipation Proclamation that had taken effect in 1863, they didn't know about it there in Texas, even in 1865. So these soldiers came in, they read aloud the Emancipation Proclamation, and for the first time, many heard, you are free. I am free. And it was a message that maybe was kept secret by some of those in power. 
Regardless, that day came to be known as Juneteenth and was started to celebrate as early as the following year in 1866. And if you didn't know it, the first places where Juneteenth celebrations took place were in some of the only places where they could do that freely and openly, and that was in the church. So in churches locally in Texas, Juneteenth was celebrated. And year after year, those celebrations grew as word spread that, hey, we need to celebrate this together. More and more churches, more and more people, not just the black community, but those who had formerly been on the other side of slavery. And then states started recognizing this as an official holiday. And then last year, for the first time ever, it became a federal holiday officially. So this is only the second year that we're officially celebrating as a nation. A little bit late, but it's here. And we're celebrating together. And it is very appropriate that today is Juneteenth because in the passage we're studying this morning, here's what we're going to find. We're going to find a message of freedom. We're going to find a story of the unprivileged gaining new rights, of a barrier being lowered between two races of people. It's in here. In the passage that we're going to study today, and we're going to hear about how we have to start figuring out where do we go from here, what's next with our new shared identity. All right, so it is a little bit of a coincidence. I mean, we picked kind of lined up the passages with the Sundays, and so we knew this was coming, but this really this uh, providential coincidence of Father's Day and Juneteenth and Ephesians 2, where we're going to be today, you know, throughout Ephesians, we've, uh, we've been asking, what does the family of God look like? And then in the passage today specifically, if we come from different backgrounds, how do we relate to each other? So Paul addresses directly the racial and ethnic tension between two groups of the Jews and the Gentiles. And he was preaching a message that was relevant to a specific time and place then, but I think it's relevant to us today because he gets to the heart of how Christ brings peace. Peace with God, and then peace between each other in human relationship. Okay? So that's why it's important or worthwhile to recognize that today's Father's Day, and we have one Father. And that today is Juneteenth, and we are celebrating freedom, emancipation, and then how we are now invited to work out our shared identity in Christ together, all right? So this is the main point I want us to walk away with today, and it is that vertical reconciliation leads to horizontal reconciliation, all right? Keep that in your mind. It's a theme we're going to hammer on today. So let's read the text. If you have a Bible, open it up. Ephesians 2 is where we're going to be. Love having a Bible in your hand. You can see context. You can check to see if what I'm saying is off base. You can jump around and look at verses that aren't on the screen. We're going to be Ephesians 2, chapter, yeah, chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. We did the first half of Ephesians last week, this week, and second half. Therefore, remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. 
who's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. So, that verse 11 starts it out. Therefore, remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. So this is Paul addressing the Gentile believers. Gentiles are the catch-all term for any, anyone who's not a Jew. All right? Non-Jew was a Gentile. And we know the introduction to this book few weeks ago. Uh, Paul's writing his letter to the Ephesian church, but we know that this letter was supposed to be passed around to different people and read aloud. And then everyone who is a part of that hearing of this letter, who is a Gentile, non-Jew, that's who Paul is addressing right now. And with the division between Gentiles and Jews, their culture recognized these two groupings of people separate and distinct, and they had a physical difference, all right? There was actually a physical difference between Jews and Gentiles, and it was that physical difference that was focused on and pointed to expressly to divide, and that's what we see here. The uncircumcision, this term, or the uncircumcised, it was a term used by Jews, the people of Israel, throughout the Old Testament. We actually see lots of instances of this where they say, the term, the uncircumcised, and the way they say it, it's in this like derogatory manner, all right? It, it, it's to assert superiority or, or to, to hint at inferiority of others in the way that it was used. So it's not just a, an objective physical description, it's actually used in this negative connotation. And there's, for instance, in Judges chapter 15, verse 18, Samson, he's talking to God and he's kind of whining to him and he says, Shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? So you can hear it in the way that he's saying it. It's just like, oh, that would be so beneath me, the uncircumcised, those people. So circumcision, it was actually originally given by the Lord as this holy thing to set apart his people, okay? To to say, these are my covenant people, but that got twisted, And we know all too well that broken humans often focus on these superficial, visible differences in order to wrongly assert superiority or privilege. There's these skin-deep differences, and we mistakenly associate those with deeper truths that we think are truths. You know, we notice that a certain people, a certain group of people, maybe are in this unprivileged position, and they all share a certain physical trait. And then we mistakenly say, well, they are unprivileged, they're in that place in life because of the skin color. That that is their reason they are inferior and unprivileged. 
But Paul is actually not trying to be ugly when he's using these terms. He's actually using it to point out how wrong it is to use these terms of uncircumcised. So the way that it reads in the text, in the Greek, um, it's Paul kind of using air quotes, the uncircumcised or the uncircumcision, all right? You were called the uncircumcision by those who called themselves the circumcision. And other translators um, translate it and, and put it this way. They say the so-called circumcision. So his implication is that these labels based on physical distinction are superficial. They're just skin deep. They're made by human hands, and it's not what's important. So for Paul, if the physical difference isn't what is important, what is important? There is a difference that maybe we should look at, and that's spiritual separation. In verse 12, he goes, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So this isn't just a difference between two races of people. He's saying there's a separation that was true in the heart, in the spirit, separated from God. So uncircumcision, that was the visible difference, but the bigger issue is that they were not part of this promise, this spiritual promise of a deliverer, that a Messiah, the Christ would come. So most of us in this room, we are, we are not Jews. I mean, I would confidently say that very few of us have actual Jewish heritage. So we are Gentiles. We are who he's talking about. Before Christ, we were outsiders. We were unprivileged. We didn't have access to God through the law or through a promised Messiah. And he says, remember, you were separated. Remember, it's repeated in verses 11 and verse 12. Remember, there's an importance to remembering the state from which you've come from the state from which you've been saved. Does this sound familiar? Last week, we said, okay, Paul is calling to our remembrance this, what we've been saved from, and it is that you have been saved, you were dead, but God made you alive. That's what we talked about last week. And you're supposed to remember that. And here, there's the same kind of rhythm. Remember, and, and what you're supposed to remember here is, remember that you were far off. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So the message is, remember you who were once unprivileged, you who were once outsiders, not a part of the in crowd. Remember, that was you, but now in Christ Jesus. This phrase, now in Christ Jesus, okay, but now in Christ Jesus. It's just like what we talked about last week, but God. This phrase that, all right, this is a horrible state, but God's doing something. And this, this phrase, but now in Christ Jesus, signals good news, miraculous good news. So in this section, the good news is you were far off and excluded. Now in Christ, you're near, you're included. You were mar marginalized, unprivileged, with no access and no freedom, but that God changed your status and now you have hope and you have new rights, you have access, you have privilege, you have freedom. Everything's different and it's cause for celebration. So what changed things? We're told that the spiritual status changed from unprivileged to privileged. What changed things? You were brought near by the blood of Christ. Blood. And this is where it gets a little strange to us. Supernatural truth that the blood of Jesus made a real difference and caused this change in status. That, that spiritual distance between us and God is bridged by 
the death of a man. And it wasn't just any man. This was the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. This goes back to Genesis, where because of sin, there was a relationship that we had with God that was broken. But God didn't leave it there. He promised, this is going to be right in the future. I'm going to make it right. I will send one who will make it all right. So he promised this deliverer. And then he set apart his people Israel and said, okay, this deliverer, this promise is going to be fulfilled through this people. There will be a blessing to all nations that will come through this people. Okay? And so they kept anticipating this one who would come, this Messiah, this deliverer. And they didn't know it. But the way that that Messiah would deliver is through his blood. He'd have to die. His blood would have to be shed. That blood is what changed everything, bringing near those who were far off. And it wasn't just for the set-apart people of Israel, not just for the privileged. It was for everybody, all of us. He came to bring peace to all. Peace. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. All right, so from reading verse 11, we know that Jews and Gentiles, they built up this division of differences based in the flesh, okay? So it says it two times in verse 11, in the flesh, in the flesh. That's where the division was. That's what people focused on. And then now it says Jesus Because of what he did in his flesh. So it uses the exact same phrases, so we make these connections. There was a problem between these people, and it was in his flesh, in their flesh, in their flesh. And then Jesus came, and he solved it in his flesh. Jesus is the answer to their problems. And there existed this dividing wall of hostility. Okay, what's that mean? Dividing wall of hostility. Uh, it actually could have referred to and be connected to um, real physical dividing walls. So we have a picture here of this uh, sign that um, is part of our archaeological find of a sign that was on the barriers that were in the temple courts that divided the outer courts and inner courts. Okay, so at the, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, you had the outer courts where anyone could be. It was the court of the Gentiles. So anyone whether you were Jew or a non-Jew, you could be in these outer courts and kind of come to the place where um, they worshiped God. But you could only cross this barrier and go into the inner courts if you were Jewish. And so they had to have signs up to say, okay, if you're not a Jew, don't come in here. And, and there's this wall that was dividing them, this barrier. And so this inscription on this sign that was on this wall in the second temple in Jerusalem, it says this, It was in Koine Greek so that everyone could understand it. And it says, no stranger, or non-Jew, is to enter within the balustrade round the temple and enclosure. Whoever is caught will be himself responsible for his ensuing death. I mean, talk about dividing walls of hostility. This is a literal barrier of death. And for sure, people were staying far away from that. I, I would. And this is a physical representation, this barrier that divided Jews and Gentiles. It was a physical representation of of what I think are the metaphorical walls between those two races of that time. They had differences in laws and practices, and they had physical differences, and it all combined and built up into this general sense of hostility between these two groups of people. It was a veritable wall between Jews and Gentiles. And so Paul says, these two people have these walls up between them, 
And Jesus is the answer. Jesus broke down that wall. All right, again, sounds good. But if we look at this logically, this, this doesn't really make sense. Like, there seems to be this really big jump in rationale and logic because two sets of people are in this, like, ethnic struggle or tension, and then the death of a man changes that? Like, how, do, how does that work? It seems like there's this big jump in logic. And we hear these statements, okay, that he was killed and our division was killed. One man died so we can become one man. His blood was shed so that we can become one blood. And all that sounds really poetic. But there's something that just doesn't quite make sense to our human minds, I'm saying. And so I think there's a key element that we have to understand of how all that actually works. How does the death of a man cause reconciliation between groups of people? And I think Paul starts to explain it with his next verse. Verse 16 and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Okay, we start getting to it. Reconciled to whom? To God, okay? So we were talking about reconciliation between people, and then he's saying, this is reconciliation to God. Reconciliation is, is, is the restoration of relationship. And the relationship between God and man was broken by sin, and that's restored in Christ. And so he's saying reconciliation happened. It happened in this vertical relationship. Gentiles reconciled to God, and Jews reconciled to God. And then when that happens, thereby killing the hostility. Okay? He's saying, here's the reason. This is how it works. Reconciliation to God in the vertical relationship killed the hostility in the horizontal relationship. Vertical reconciliation leading to horizontal reconciliation. God in and through Christ, he changed everything. And he said, Gentiles, you are my children. Jews, you are my children. And and they both call him father. And if you were calling the same person father, what does that mean for you in your relationship with each other? You're siblings. That means you call that other person brother and sister. Whatever your background was before, now you call the same person father, and that makes you family. It makes you brothers and sisters. And in our family, that's lived out. We have two of our kids were adopted, two homegrown, and they had differing origins and backgrounds. And then we said, you are my children. And with that, in a way that they never had to do before, they had to say, okay, that makes you my brother and you my sister in this horizontal relationship. Because that vertical relationship was established, restored, made different. How amazing is it that this can be the truth? That a transition can happen in the relationships between these groups and between us and other humans, that we can go from hostility to hugs, from foes to friends, or family. Now today, it's Father's Day. How amazing is it? Okay, we each can have a relationship with the Father, and then, because of that, together we have a shared identity. As we call him Father, we're calling each other brother and sister, and that means we also got to figure out how we're going to get along. 
vertical reconciliation leading to horizontal reconciliation. All right, we're going to keep coming back to this point. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who are near. Peace. Man, we need that. We need it individually. We need it as society and culture, as a nation, as a world. I shared this in the first service that, um, you know, sometimes I get up here to teach and it's not, you know, it's only every couple months or something. And, and Lee La Rochelle, um, I don't think he's here, but he kind of called out one time. He's like, Jonathan, you do this thing when you get up there every single time. I was like, oh no. Uh, is it my fly being down? Because that's happened. And then he said, actually, you know, you get up there and then you stand up there and you go like this. <sighs> and, and, and I found that I did, I did it today. And, and really it's because like, so much going on leading up to this moment, and I'm just like, I just, I, I need some peace. And I know that that's the same as a lot of people here. You need, you need peace. You crave it. You're asking for it. All of you have different circumstances. I know it. There's some hard stuff going on in this fellowship. And the counselor I used to meet with, he, he would ask this question. He would say, all right, Jonathan, how are you sleeping? And then, of course, if I say, I'm not sleeping too good, and the follow-up question is, what's keeping you up at night? And in the answer to those things, we find this, this source of, of stress, of strife, of angst, that we just need peace. And the Bible tells us that to get that, we lift it up to him. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If we are not at rest, we give it to God. We ask him, and that's how we get peace. It comes through him alone. Peace is found in Christ. In verse 14, he had said, Jesus is our peace. In verse 17, not only is he our peace, he has preached peace. All right, think about that for a second. He is our peace and he preached peace. Now, how did he do that to those who were far off? Because it says, he preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who are near. Now, and we know that Jesus in his life, we read the Gospels, he preached to the Jews mainly. He even says it explicitly a few times um, that that's who he came to preach to. But here it's saying he preached peace to those who are far off, the Gentiles. I don't think you can get to that conclusion by looking at his life in the Gospels. But we know that message of peace goes out not through Christ and his physical words when he was walking this earth, but how does that message of peace go out? Through us, through his disciples, through his followers. He even, as one of his last statements, said, okay, you all, you need to go out there and you're going to be carrying this message to the nations, okay, the Great Commission. It says that we are supposed to go out into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when he says to all the nations, panta ta ethne, ta ethne is the exact same phrase as the Gentiles, those who are far off. So Jesus did preach to those who were far off, and that comes through us. We are the messengers of peace. 
And that message goes out to the ends of the earth. That is, that is what Taylor was saying when she's like, I'm going to follow the Lord and carry that message. Peace is not just for one people group. It's not for the privileged few. It wasn't just the insiders who got that message of peace. With Jesus, our peace, and the message that goes out to the ends of the earth, it goes to all nations, all peoples, all languages, equally. Okay, so, so peace has an essential component here, and that's equal access. Thought about that? Verse 18, for through him, we both, we all, all peoples, have access in one spirit to the Father. And this is one of those really special verses in the Bible that has all three persons of the Trinity. Through him, the Son, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Did you ever think about how the Trinity, the concept of the Trinity, has this built-in message of inclusion, of equal access, a story of reconciliation, just in that concept of the Trinity? Through Jesus, the Son, we all equally have access in one spirit to the Father. Okay, and then Paul just transitions to heaping on the analogies to help us understand what all this means for us. He already said we've been made into one new man, and he adds to that, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So you're not just one new man, you're also fellow citizens and your family. And we know in this country, almost better than any other country in the world, that fellow citizens does not mean that it's a homogeneous population. We don't all look the same. We don't all come from the same backgrounds. And so fellow citizens means it's colorful. It's diverse. We're not a melting pot. We're a salad bowl. And we know in a family that everyone's not the exact same either, whether that's an adopted family or a biological family. Family members aren't the same. There's differing looks, there's different personalities, different interests, strengths, and weaknesses. In both metaphors, citizenship and family, we hold to what unites us, but then we still recognize and celebrate appropriately that what makes us different. So this right here is a gathering of people who have professed to be believers. Most of you. Okay, I recognize some of you may not claim to be a Christian. Most of you have. And in that, we are saying, okay, we are a gathered grouping of Christians. And we are this, this church together. And if what we're reading is true, we are at peace with Christ, and each of us have equal access to, to, to the Father through the Spirit. We're one new man. We're fellow citizens. We are family, okay? And so if that is us, I mean, look around and look at your family. Like, really, look around. Look behind you. Take a second. Okay, look at the differences. I know we're not supposed to look at the differences and focus on them. I want you to focus on the differences. Because th th this is your fellow citizen. This is your brother or sister in the Lord. And the differences that normally would separate us, we say, I see that. I celebrate that that's part of my family. I celebrate that that's part of my colorful collection of fellow citizens or of family and it's beautiful, but these are things that normally would separate and things that some people would use wrongly to associate inferiority or superiority. You know, last week we talked about how 
We're each a masterpiece, a poema. You are God's masterpieces, beautiful, created in his image and a work of art, handiwork of God, okay? And I, I said, you should be able to see other people as beautiful inherently as God's masterpieces. And then so I wanna say that, that we take that a step further. We don't just admire people, looking at those differences and, and those unique traits. We don't just admire it as a masterpiece we hold at arm's length. It's not just something that's in a museum that we go home and we're like, hey, that was nice to look at today. Now I'm in my comfort zone. Instead, we, we say those masterpieces are part of your home. That's part of your family. That uniqueness, those differences, and it's there in relationship. And I gotta figure out what do I do when I'm face to face with that every single day? That masterpiece, work of art, is your brother or sister. And I know we're mixing metaphors, and that's okay, because Paul does it too. And if you look at Renan, he starts talking about how all of us are a temple. A different metaphor, okay, verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And Paul's talking about the church. He's not talking about the physical building. He's talking about the spiritual building of the church. It's founded on Christ the cornerstone. And I know we're not experts in uh, ancient building construction. Um, so we have a visual of uh, what cornerstones were. This is actually a picture taken from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, like modern day. Because these cornerstones were placed at that time, like 2,000 years ago. The, each one of these massive cornerstones that, that are outlined right there, um, they each weigh like 80 tons. They're, they're 40 feet long, they're eight feet wide, three and a half feet tall. This is what kind of cornerstone the audience would have been familiar with. And these cornerstones were so key, they were so well-established that the Romans couldn't move them. And, and that up to even that height of what the cornerstones were, the building remained standing even to this day. And all other buildings that didn't have those kinds of cornerstones, they're gone. And so cornerstones, they were laid first. The foundation, instruction, and form of the building all were, took their form from that reference point. And Christ is that cornerstone for us. And there is no other, other name under heaven by which men must be saved. It's Christ alone, cornerstone. Christ. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Jesus is our primary uniting factor. We can't deny it. We gather in his name and our identity is found in him. And this is important. Because, yeah, everyone out there, believer or not, everyone's a masterpiece of God. Yes, we recognize that. But if they haven't claimed Christ as Lord, if they haven't heeded his call and invitation into life, into salvation, they're not a part of this spiritual building. They haven't built their life on the cornerstone of Christ. But I say that not to advocate that we shut them out and those who haven't built their life on Christ the cornerstone, aren't part of it. I, I think the opposite. I think I want to recognize that Christ is the, is the thing that's special and that those with Christ are here with us building the temple of the Lord and those without Christ are outsiders and they're lost. And I, I, I want to bring up that distinction because shouldn't it compel us to share the message of freedom with them and bring them in to this fellowship? Like, don't bring it up to exclude, but bring it up so that others can join in. If 
we truly believe Christ is the cornerstone, the only way to be a part of this metaphorical building, shouldn't we unashamedly preach the gospel of peace, proclaiming the name of Christ explicitly, not being afraid to say Jesus, not being afraid to bring him up wherever our context. And so others are out there trying to build on different foundations. And sometimes it sounds really good to our human ears. And then this weekend's like even more so, where people are preaching messages of, of reconciliation and they're preaching messages of hope and talking about how we are family and, and we love one another and here's, here's how, here's how you have compassion, here's how you live with others in harmony, but without Christ, the cornerstone, the only thing that they're building is a house of cards and it will fall. It's a false promise of hope and a temporary band-aid that does not ultimately heal spiritual wounds. Ultimately, they're still left far off without God and without hope in this world. So if we believe we're spiritual beings and life continues after this body takes its last breath, shouldn't we pursue eternal reconciliation, eternal peace, bringing people into a spiritual brotherhood, a spiritual family, a spiritual building, not leaving them to end their lives far off. Verse 21 has the word grows. It's an active word, verb. And verse 22, are being built together. This is not something that happened and has no other action right now. This is a process. This process of, of growth and building and figuring out all of this together because we are constantly, hopefully, growing this church and bringing people into the kingdom, not just Resonate, but the Big C Church. And so as we keep adding new members of the family with their uniqueness, their differences, we should be in process of continually working it all out figuring out who we are together in the Lord. And we should see that because of this, the church should be the place where reconciliation is lived out in real, visible, tangible, are broken down. And we put on display the peace that comes from the Lord. You know, we don't just share the gospel and then leave it at that. We don't just invite people to church and then just hope that they're okay on their own, coming and going with no, no other interaction. It's in the messiness of the day-to-day -day of life on life that we work this out. We learn to love and appreciate and celebrate our differences as we hold to Christ who unites us and the common spirit that lives within us. And the way that that looks is us meeting practical needs within the body. We look out for them and then we meet those needs. In James 2, it says this, if a brother or sister, brother or sister, okay, so this is the body of believers, is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? What good would that be? So we keep our eyes peeled for, for seeing where there's need within our body. And we quickly and easily, we share our stuff when there's need. You know, if you're part of the Resonate Slack group, you see all the time someone saying, I need this, and someone else saying, well, I can help fulfill that need. Or, I've got this free stuff, I'll take it. Or someone saying, I need a place to stay, or I have these guests come from out of town, or this, this missionary has come in, they don't have places to stay, they don't have a car to drive. And then you say, yes, like use, use my space, my house, my car for free. It's us meeting each other's needs. And it's not just with physical, material goods, it's relationally where we work this out. If we disagree with one another, we seek reconciliation, we do the hard work of talking through it, speaking the truth in love and pursuing unity because we're in it for the long haul. 
We don't just pick up and move to another church when this one gets uncomfortable. So we live out lives in this faith community, pursuing oneness and unity and reconciliation. Why? Because Christ is the cornerstone. He's our peace. He made us one new man together. And it started with this relationship, the vertical one being reconciled. And that brings us to an ongoing process of making this relationship horizontally with each other healthy. Vertical reconciliation leading to horizontal reconciliation. And so if you are, have not yet called yourself a follower of Christ, there's an invitation to you to first be reconciled to God. Okay, you can't put the cart before the horse and try to pursue harmony with fellow man. If you haven't come into harmony with God, that is the primary relationship that should be repaired first. That will lead to the other ones coming. So you may feel far off, like you are without hope and without God in this world, but Christ died so that you could be brought near. In, in Acts 2, I really love the story of Pentecost, and Peter is, is preaching to the crowd, and he shares about Jesus, and then when he gets done preaching, the Gentiles, these people who were far off, they say, sirs, what must we do to be saved? And the message that he says to them, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So if you feel like you are far off, if you have not, not known Jesus as Savior, as your Lord, that's you. And this promise is for you, promise of life and salvation. From last week, it's a promise that you would be made alive even though you're dead. From this week, it's a promise that you can come near if you have felt far off. A promise that you will be entering into privilege and freedom when before you were enslaved and you were unprivileged. And if you are already a believer in Christ, um, there are three things I want you to walk away with today, and, and they are conveniently alliterated for you, and they are memory, message, and ministry. Okay, this comes from the passage that we start with remembering, memory. Remember that you also were far off, okay? You're no exception. And you who were once far off in Christ, you've been brought near. Remember how you were without hope and without God in the world, but Christ changed your status and your relationship to the Father was restored and reconciled. So remind yourself, how miraculous and momentous that is. And as you remember that, that leads you into sharing the message with others. And it leads you into being a minister of reconciliation. Okay? Starts with that memory and then leads into sharing the message. And the truth is there is a whole population of people out there who have never heard the message. You think about the reality of Juneteenth, how there are these people who were enslaved and didn't know that they were already free. And that is the spiritual reality today. The 1040 window, the vast majority of people throughout the world in these, these countries where the Christianity is not majority religion, they just they haven't even heard. They haven't heard the name of Jesus. They don't have the Bible written in their language. No Christian has come in contact with them in their entire lives. And they need to hear a message of freedom. You are the ones to carry that message and if you don't, they're not going to hear it. They will continue in their lives in slavery and darkness, not knowing 
that one has set them free and that they can come into this family. And so we should be motivated to share this message. There is a verse, a section in 2 Corinthians 5 that really captures this, and I wish we had time to dig into this. It says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are saying to others, there's this broken relationship that is vertical that needs to be reconciled. Be reconciled to God. And after that happens, we can see we are in this together. We have joined into one family. We are one new man. We are one church. We are one building And so, brother or sister in Christ, I love you and I accept you. I'm going to work through all this hard stuff together, making sure our relationship stays reconciled with each other. And when there's division, that we, we, we try to attack those walls of hostility. Because this isn't just a verbal message. This is a message that should carry through in action. We should be known for uncompromisingly holding fast to the cornerstone that is Christ. But precisely because of him, we pursue unity and reconciliation and peaceful brotherhood and sisterhood in tangible ways. Okay? So whatever dividing walls that remain, we should be actively breaking them down. That means we invite others into this community who don't look like us, who have a different background, different stage of life, different race, different socioeconomic status, different physical abilities. And whatever continues to to separate or ostracize, we believers should be the first to say, let's remove that barrier. Let's kill that wall of facility in Christ. Because God removed every barrier between me and him in this relationship. So we actively work towards removing these barriers between us. I mean, the other. That means you seek forgiveness. You ask for it. You receive it. You grant it. We would actively be people who help people get stable in life because maybe their barrier is employment or housing or putting food on the table. Let's kill those barriers of hostility, those walls. There are other barriers that prevent people from being included in this fellowship, even in this specific one. We even talked about one a few weeks ago, and that is there are some of our kids here in this, in this fellowship who have special needs, differing abilities. And sometimes that gets in the way of them being included over there in that building in kid church. So we put a call out. We said, would you volunteer to be a buddy? Because there's this barrier to this person being a part of this fellowship. Would you volunteer to sit with them, be with them in the in, in, in entire lesson so that you can help facilitate that so that they can feel like and then truly be a part of that fellowship, being a full integrated member of this community? You can put that down on a connect card and say you want to volunteer. The invitation is still open. I mean, if we are faithful and obedient in sharing the right message of reconciliation, and we are faithful and obedient in being ministers of reconciliation, think about the, the changes that would happen in our fellowship, 
Like when you look around and you do that whole, okay, I know those differences and everything, right now, it's, it still looks a lot the same. You gotta be honest. But as we are ministers of reconciliation and we are real about that in every area, in every way, and breaking down those barriers of hostility, this will start to look like a different fellowship, okay? We're gonna have more shades of brown and black and white. We're gonna have people who come from different jobs or no jobs, people from different family situations, people with different physical abilities. It should look different as we are active ministers of reconciliation. Okay, I could keep talking about this. We're gonna to transition to communion. And here, here's communion, this is, this is awesome that we get to be a part of this. I want you to look at communion today in two different ways. One, remember. Jesus himself said this is, this is a, a, an exercise in remembering. All right? So as you partake today, remember you who are far off, you've been brought near. You've been reconciled to God. Remember that distance that was bridged. Okay, so remember. And then the other aspect of communion I want you to focus on today is this is a family meal. All right, we partake in this together with others who have been reconciled to God. And because of that, we get to be in fellowship with each other and share a meal together as family. So we th give thanks to God the Father that our Savior, Jesus Christ, before he suffered, gave us this memorial of his sacrifice, communion, until he comes again. At his last supper, the Lord Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. We remember until he comes. Therefore... We proclaim our faith as signed and sealed in this sacrament. And let's say it together. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Let us pray. Lord, our God.